Hello, and welcome to the Mormon History Podcast. Bonus Episode 7, Lost Tribes, The Gathering of Israel and the New Jerusalem. In today's episode, we will be examining Part 2 of the Lost Tribes Saga, The Gathering of Israel and the New Jerusalem. Before we get to the Gathering of Israel, I need to address the question of what did the Ten Tribes do while they were lost? The Book of Mormon, in part, answers this, according to Paul K. Browning in his July 1998 Ensign article, Gathering Scattered Israel. Quote, Concerning the Lord's willingness to reveal his will to these people, Nephi records that Jesus Christ said, And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. This passage indicates that at some point in their history, these lost tribes understood their identity and had prophets among them. The Savior gives evidence of this when he tells the Nephites, But now I go unto the Father, and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel. For they are not lost unto the Father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. Ultimately, many Israelites lost their identity and were assimilated into local populations. A model for this phenomenon can be found in the descendants of Lehi who were also Israelites. For 1,000 years, the Book of Mormon and Book of Mormon history, Lehites possessed a sense of their identity. Prophets taught them the Lord's will, and the Lord visited them. Eventually, however, they lost their remembrance of and concern for their Abrahamic origins. End quote. There is a scriptural basis for the gathering of Israel found as far back as Moses' time. The Book of Deuteronomy records, quote, that then the Lord thy God will turn thee thy captivity, and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Quote. According to the prophet Isaiah, Christ will gather his people, quote, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the ends of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. End quote. Latter-day Saints believe this ensign to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Gordon B. Hinckley, the 15th President of the Church, quoted Isaiah in his October 20, 2003 talk, an ensign to the nations, a light to the world. Quote, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and the nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, for the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He continued, Ever since the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated, we have interpreted the scripture, that scripture from Isaiah, repeated again in Micah, as applying to the sacred house of the Lord. And of this place... Since, since the day of its dedication, an ever-increasing number from across the world have said, in effect, Come ye, and let us go unto the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. I believe and testify it that the na mission of this church is to stand as an ensign to the nations and a light to the world. End quote. Saints in the 19th and early 20th century gathered to Zion, which they considered to be Utah in the United States. Church leaders encouraged them to build Zion in their own lands, in their own congregations and homes, and in their hearts. 
Missionaries are sent all over the world to preach the gospel so that the scattered descendants of Israel can build Zion where they are. Church buildings and temples are built all around the globe to reflect this growth and this mission. Thus, there are two kinds of gatherings of Israel, the literal gathering to a geographic location and the spiritual gathering that happens in the hearts of the people. Sometimes a little literal gathering happens when people gather for church or flock to temples to perform temple work. But there is the gathering, the literal gathering, which in which the descendants of Israel will return to the land of Israel. Isaiah later prophesied that the Lord will recover the remnant of his people from such lands as Assyria, Egypt, Pathros or Upper Egypt, Cush or Eastern Africa, Elam, the Western Iran, Shinar, Mesopotamia, Hamath in Syria, and the islands of the sea. In the Book of Mormon, the prophet Nephi also describes the gathering of Israel, quote, And it shall come to pass that they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion, from the isles of the sea, and from the four parts of the earth. And the nations of the Gentiles shall be great in the eyes of me, saith God, in carrying forth to the lands of their inheritance. There are two interesting points in Nephi's words. First concerns the Isles of the Sea, mentioned both in 2 Nephi and in Isaiah. Nephi and his contemporaries arrived in the Americas around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The people of Nephi believed that they dwelt on an island in the sea, as opposed to a new continent. Thus, when Isaiah refers to the islands of the sea, Latter-day Saints believe that he is referring to the Americas and, their and the descendants of Nephi and his brothers. But this begs the question, will all the descendants of Israel, including the descendants of Nephi, go to Jerusalem? Not necessarily. Thousands of years ago, on the American continents, the Lord told a prophet named Ether that the new Jerusalem would be built here in the Americas. Christ reiterated this when he visited the Nephites and Lamanites after his ascension around 34 AD. Quote, and behold, this people will I establish in this land unto the fulfilling of the covenant which I made with your father Jacob, and it shall be a new Jerusalem, and the powers of heaven shall be in the midst of this people, yea, even I will be in the midst of you. End quote. On February 9, 1831, Joseph Smith had a revelation in the presence of twelve elders that the location of the New Jerusalem would be revealed, and that Smith and his followers would have to build it. Less than a month later, Joseph Smith received another revelation, in which the Lord said, quote, Ye hear of wars in foreign lands, but behold, I say unto you, they are nigh, even at your doors, and not many years hence ye shall hear of wars in your own lands. The Lord is talking about the civil war here. Wherefore I, the Lord, have said, Gather ye out from the eastern lands, assemble ye yourselves together, the elders of my church, and go ye forth into the western countries. Call upon the, in the inhabitants to repent, and in which they do repent, to build up churches unto me. And with one heart and with one mind, gather up your riches, that ye may purchase an inheritance which shall hereafter be appointed unto you. And it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God, and the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord shall also be there, insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it, and it shall be called Zion. End quote. In June of that year, 1831, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon received the instru the, this instruction by God to go to Jerusalem. There, a month later, Smith received the following revelation.
Quote, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, saith the Lord your God, who have assembled yourselves together according to my commandments in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, this is the land of promise, and the place of the city of Zion. And thus saith the Lord your God, If you will receive wisdom, here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now, which is now called Independence is the center place. And the spot for the temple is lying westward, upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. Wherefore it is wisdom that the land should be purchased by the saints, and also every tract lying westward, even unto the line running directly between the Jew and the Gentile, and also every tract bordering by the prairies, and as much as my disciples are enabled to buy lands. Behold, this is wisdom they may obtain it for an everlasting inheritance. End quote. The LDS.org Revelations in Context article on the 57th section of Doctrine and Covenants says, quote, Doctrine and Covenants 57 observe that the, the existence of this settlement line without endorsing it. The revelation noted that Zion should be built along, quote, the line running directly among, between Jew and Gentile, end quote, or the line separating the state of Missouri from Indian Territory to the West. The Revelation resisted the usual categories, however, primarily through its curious use of the terms Jew and Gentile, the standard terms used by Americans, white and Indian, or white and red, suggested a racial or cultural divide. The two groups were worlds apart, and white people often deployed the terminology to emphasize this incompatibility. The categories of Jew and Gentile, however, indicated a distinction between groups, not but not an inc incompatibility between them. According to the Book of Mormon, both Jew and Gentile had a vital role in God's unfolding plan. God invited them to work together. The gospel in ancient times would go from from the Jews, God's covenant, ancient covenant people, unto the Gentiles, who would be grafted into the covenant. In the latter days, the relationship would be reversed. The gospel would proceed forth from the Gentiles unto the Jews, who would come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Doctrine and Covenants 57 echoes this covenantal structure by designating Indians as Jews, in this way recognizing the group as part of God's covenant people. The Indians were of the house of Israel, chosen, beloved, and remembered by God. At the time when Indian removal, the separation of one race from another, had become a national policy of the United States government. Joseph Smith's revelations moved in a different direction. Rather than marginalizing Indians, pushing them out to the outskirts of civilization, the revelations brought Zion to them, putting God's holy city in their midst. Zion was, was found between Jew and Gentile, between the races. And in this arrangement, people of multiple races could play an essential role in God's work. People on every compass point of this of the center, if they were willing, could become the pure in heart and dwell in Zion in safety and peace. Safety and peace were not to be found in Missouri, however. The saints spent all they had to buy property for the temple and for the city of Zion. Mobs and militias forced them to leave the community of independence behind. But the spirit of building Zion stuck with the saints as they built the temple in Kirtland, Ohio, and later the city of Nauvoo, Illinois, and the many cities and towns in the mountain valleys of the west. In the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, Graham W. Doxey wrote, quote, 
The future rebuilding of the Holy Land for the House of Judah and the building of the New Jerusalem in the Western Hemisphere for the House of Joseph are associated with the return of the Messiah to the earth. Of this era, the 1845 Proclamation of the Twelve says, He will assemble the natives, the remnants of Joseph in America, and make them great and even strong and powerful a nation. He will civilize and enlighten them, and he will establish a holy city and temple and seat of government among them, which shall be called Zion. And there shall be his tabernacle, his sanctuary, his throne, and seat of government for the whole continent of North and South America forever. In short, it will be to the Western Hemisphere that what Jerusalem will be to the Eastern. The city of Zion, with its sanctuary and priesthood, and the glorious fullness of the gospel, will constitute a, nest, a standard which will put an end to jarring creeds and political wranglings by uniting the republics, states, provinces, territories, nations, tribes, kindred, tons, people, and sects of North America and South America in one great and common bond of brotherhood. Truth and knowledge shall make them free, and love cement their union. The Lord shall also be their king and their lawgiver, while wars shall cease and peace prevail for a thousand years. The prophet Isaiah declared that in a future time, out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notre Day Saints believe this refers to the two Zion's headquarters in the two hemispheres from which the Messiah, the returned Son of God, will reign triumphantly over, all the, over the whole earth. On April 3, 1836, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery retired to the pulpit of the Kirtland Temple, the veils being dropped, and bowed in solemn and silent prayer. After rising from the prayer, they had a vision of Christ appearing in his full power and glory. Christ accepted the Kirtland Temple as his house. Then Moses, Elias, and Elijah appeared, one by one. It was a resurrected Moses who conferred upon Smith and Calvary the, ca the keys of the ga gathering of Israel from the four corners of the earth, and the leading of ten the ten tribes from the land of the north. President Russell M. Nelson wrote, quote, It is appropriate that Moses, who first led God's children to the land of their inheritance, will be the one to commit the keys of the gathering of Israel to the restored church. Moses had come to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there had bestowed upon them the same priesthood keys in their day. At the conference of the church in April 1840, the prophet Joseph Smith anoint, appointed Orson Hyde to go to Jerusalem, and there dedicate the land for the return of the Jews and scattered Israel. On Sunday, October 24, 1841, Elder Hyde knelt on the Mount of Olives and dedicated that land for the gathering of the Jews and of Israel to their ancient inheritance. According to the LDS Old Testament Student Manual, quote, Isaiah 49, 22-26, speaks of the day when God's promises will be fulfilled and how it will be done. The how is made clear in verses 22 and 23. God will set up his standard, the gospel, or the new and everlasting covenant, and they, they the Gentiles, shall bring forth thy, the house of Israel's, sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried on their shoulders, and kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. This prophecy has, as Nephi said, both a temporal and a spiritual fulfillment. The wind of the prophecy is now. 
Converts from throughout the world have joined the church and then have gone throughout the world seeking to reclaim the house of Israel and bring them back to the Lord. President Spencer W. Kimball saw a partial fulfillment of these verses in the church's modern missionary efforts, specifically with the descendants of Lehi. Quote, This day of the Lamanite brings opportunity. Millions farm the steep hillsides of the Indian ranges and market their produce with llamas and horses and burros. They must have the emancipating gospel. Millions serve in menial labor, eke out bare subsistence from soil and toil. They must hear the compelling truths of the gospel. Millions are tied to reservations, deprived, untrained, and less than they could be. They must be must have the enlightening gospel. It will break their fetters, stir their ambition, increase their vision, and open new worlds of opportunity to them. Their captivity will be at an end. Captivity from misconceptions, illiteracy, superstition, fear. The brighter day has dawned, the scattering has been accomplished, and the gathering is in process. May the Lord bless us all as we become nursing fathers and mothers under our Lamanite brethren, and hasten the fulfillment of the great promises made to them. End quote. But there is another side as well. Following the end of World War I, Great Britain was given the mandate over Palestine to begin to facilitate the ingathering of the Jews scattered throughout the earth. Other Gentile nations, such as the United States, also rallied to assist. In the mid-20th century, President Joseph Fielding Smith spoke of the role Great Britain played in the establishment of the nation of Israel. Quote, From the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus until the year 1917, Jerusalem was trodden down by the of the Gentiles. After General Allenby, at the head of the British forces, captured Palestine, that country became free from the tyranny and oppression of the Turkish Empire. And after peace was declared, England set to Palestine, Dr. Herbert Samuel, a Jew, to be governor of the land. And that is the first time in all those years that a Jew has ruled in Palestine. We see today a miracle being performed before our eyes. Following the war, which we are pleased to call the First World War, the Br British pr Premier issued a proclamation to the Jews telling them that they could gather and they could have in Palestine a Jewish home or state. They began to gather in great numbers. At the beginning of the 20th century, things in Palestine were in a deplorable condition. They were using wooden plows, water wheel irrigation. They had infested wells and streams. They carried water and skins as of old. Sanitation was deplorable. The British government changed all of this when they obtained the mandate. You see, the mandate of Palestine was given to Great Britain. That nation and other nations spent millions of pounds in rehabilitating that land. The Sea of Galilee is now a great reservoir, and the floodwaters from the various streams are being diverted into it. Canals have been, quote, have been built for irrigation, and the Jordan has been changed from its natural channel into channels or can into canals on either side of the original stream. These irrigate some 7 million acres, which cannot be under cultivation otherwise. Hydroelectric stations have been built on these streams, end quote. In 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine and create a Jewish state in the land for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. Thus, the Gentiles participated in the fulfillment of the prophecy, although there may yet be future fulfillment. The prey mentioned in Isaiah 49:24 is the house of Israel in her scattered condition. She is prey, or captive, because she has been unable throughout the centuries to return to her promised home or to claim her gospel blessings. Until recently, 
many Gentile countries would not permit Jewish residents to emigrate, or and many still do not permit the gospel to be preached in, freely in their borders. All of that will change, for even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. When Jacob quoted this verse in the Book of Mormon, he added these significant words, For the mighty God shall deliver his covenant people. And thus, all flesh shall know that, in, that I, the Lord, am thy Savior, and thy Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. First the Lord predicts it, then he brings it to pass. Only a mighty one could perform such a task. Nephi made it very clear to all those who seek to thwart the Lord in bringing this great thing to pass, shall be destroyed, for they shall fall into the pit which they digged to ensnare the people of the Lord. End quote. As we examined in the first episode on the scattering of Israel, the Jewish diaspora happened in parts. First, there was a natural emigration of Jews from Israel and Judah. Wikipedia does an excellent job of summarizing the history of the Jewish diaspora. Quote, the first exile was the Assyrian exile. The expulsion from the kingdom of Israel, Samaria, begun by Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria in 733 BC. This process was completed by Sargon II with the destruction of the kingdom in 722 BC. In concluding a three-year siege of Samaria begun by Shalmaneser V. The next experience of exile was the Babylonian captivity in which portions of the population of the kingdom of Judah were deported in 597 BC and again in 586 BC by the Neo-Babylonian Empire under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar II. Before the middle of the first century AD, in addition to Judea, Syria, and Babylonia, large Jewish communities existed in the Roman provinces of Egypt, Cyrene, and Crete, and in Rome itself. After the siege of Jerusalem in 63 BC, when the Hasmonean Kingdom became a protectorate of Rome, emigration intensified. In 6 AD, the region was organized as the Roman province of Judea, but the Judean population revolted against the Roman Empire in 66 AD during the period known as the First Jewish-Roman War, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. During the siege, the Romans destroyed the Second Temple and destroyed and most of the most of Jerusalem. This event marked the beginning of the Roman exile, also called the Edom exile. Jewish leaders and elite were exiled from the land, killed, or taken to Rome as slaves. In 132 AD, the remaining Jews under Bar Kokhba rebelled against Hadrian, per Cassius Dio, in response to Hadrian's renaming of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina. In 135 AD, Hadrian's army defeated the Jewish armies, and Jewish independence was lost. As punishment, Hadrian exiled more Jews and forbade the Jews from living in their capital. During the Middle Ages, due to increasing geographical dispersion and resettlement, Jews divided into distinct regional groups, which are today generally addressed according to two primary geographical groupings, the Ashkenazi of the Northern and Eastern Europe, and the Sephardic. Jews of Iberia, Spain and Portugal, North Africa, and the Middle East. These groups have parallel histories sharing many cultural similarities, as well as a series of massacres, persecutions, and expulsions, such as the expulsion from Spain in 1492, the expulsion from England in 1290, and the expulsion from Arab countries in 1948 through 1973. End quote. In the middle of the 16th century, 
Joseph Nazi, a non-Muslim supported by the Ottoman Empire, made a plan to gather the Jews from Portugal and transport them to Palestine. He convinced Suleiman I to intervene with the Pope on behalf of these Jews imprisoned in Ancona. This would be the only practical attempt to establish a Jewish political center in Palestine until the 19th century. In the 19th century, the Zionist movement began to grow among the Jews, despite being rejected by conferences of rabbis held at the time. The individuals began to emigrate to Palestine. The movement, called, the movement was called Aliyah. In 1819, Jewish settlements were established in the upper Mississippi region. In 1825, Mordecai Noah tried to establish a Jewish refuge opposite Buffalo, New York on Grand Isle. American consul Warder Cresson developed some Jewish settlements in the Valley of Rephraim of Jerusalem in 1850. These early attempts ultimately failed. In the late 19th century, Jews from the Russian Empire, the first Aliyah, sought refuge in Palestine from the pogroms that, and the state-led persecution of their homelands, modern-day Ukraine and Poland. More Aliyahs followed the Russian Revolution and the Nazi persecution of the 1930s. In the 1890s, Theodor Herzl infused Zionism with a new ideology and practical urgency, leading to the first Zionist Congress at Basel in 1897, which created the World Zionist Organization, WZO. Herzl's aim was to initiate necessary preparatory steps for the development of a Jewish state. Russia, with its eth ethnic cleansing and pogroms, became the historic enemy of the Jewish people. The Russian anti-Semitism led Jews to flock to Berlin and ultimately support Germany in the First World War. At first, Zionists looked to other places, such as Uganda and Argentina, to establish Jewish states. Theodor Herzl was okay with a Jewish state in any location, but other Zionist leaders insisted that only the land of Israel would do. As World War I roared on, Britain feared leaders feared that American Jews would con convince the United States to support Germany in the war against newly communist Russia. These fears led to the 1917 Baal IV Declaration, which, in part, read, quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment of Palestine, in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of non-existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights of and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. End quote. In 1922, the League of Nations granted to Britain the Palestine Mandate, which was said to, quote, secure the establishment of the Jewish national home and the development of self-governing institutions, and also safeguard the civil and religious rights of all the inhabitants of Palestine, irrespective of race and religion, end quote. Jewish migrants made their way to Palestine and brought large par parcels of land, leading to landlessness among Palest Palestine Arabs. These Palestinians rioted riot in 1920, 1921, and 1929, causing the deaths of both Jewish and Jews and Arabs. As Germany grew more anti-Semitic, certain Jews called for an anti-Nazi boycott. This only fueled the Nazis' hatred for the Jews that resulted in the Holocaust. 
1935 Nuremberg Laws made German, Austrian, and Czech Jews stateless refugees. Nazi propaganda led to the 1936-1939 Arab Revolt in Palestine. Britain placed quotas on the numbers of Jews allowed in the Holy Land. Desperate, European Jews crossed the Mediterranean and Black Sea to reach Palestine. The British would capture these illegal immigrants and imprison them in Cyprus or send them back to the Allied-occupied portions of Germany. Stalin and the Soviets initially backed the Jews during the Second World War, hoping they would aid them in the war effort. After Israel was partitioned in 1947, Stalin and the Soviet Union reversed their policy and began to aid the Arabs against the Jews. Thus, the conflict between the Jew and Arab became a conflict between the American and the Soviet. On May 14, 1948, at the end of the British Mandate, the Jewish Agency, led by David Ben-Gurion, declared the creation of the State of Israel. And on the same day, the armies of seven Arab countries invaded Israel. The, the conflict led to an exodus of about 711,000 Palestinian Arabs, known in Arabic as the Catastrophe. Later, a series of laws passed by the first Israeli government prevented Palestinians from returning to their homes or claiming their property. They and many of their descendants remain refugees. Since the creation of the State of Israel, the World Zionist Organization has functioned mainly as an organization dedicated to assisting and encouraging Jews to migrate to Israel. It has provided political support for Israel and other countries, but plays little role in, inter in internal Israeli politics. So the purpose of this episode is not to get stuck in the middle of a discussion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict still unfolding, nor is it to give a definitively nor is it to definitive, definitively give a solution to the conflict. I believe that Christ will sort it out when he arrives to rule the earth. In April 6, 1845, Wilfred Woodruff wrote, quote, It is set forward that the Lord has appointed a temple and a holy city to be built on the continent of America for the endowment and ordinances pertaining to the priesthood and for the Gentiles and the remnants of Israel to resort to, in order to worship the Lord, to be taught in his ways, and walk in his paths, and finish their preparations for the second coming of the Lord. A command is also given to the Jews among all nations, to prepare to return to Jerusalem and Palestine, and to rebuild that city and temple unto the Lord. Thus America and Jerusalem are set forth as two places for, of gathering for the nations, and they may escape the judgments about to overtake the world, as the prophets have testified, that in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. End quote. Woodruff would later say, quote, I believe that the God Almighty reserved a certain class of men to carry on his word. They have been born into the world into this generation. I believe this was the case with Joseph Smith. I believe he was ordained to this work before he was tabernacled in the flesh. He was a literal descendant of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, and the Lord called him and ordained him. He gave unto him the keys of the kingdom. He received the record of the stick of Joseph in the hands of Ephraim to stand with the Bible, the stick of Judah, in the last days as a power to as a power to gather the twelve tribes of Israel before the coming of Shiloh, their king. End quote. Bruce R. McConkie in nineteen seventy seven organized the gathering of Israel into three phases. Quote, the gathering of Israel and the establishment of Zion in the latter days is divided into three periods or phases. The first phase is past. We are now living in the second phase, and the third lies ahead. Prophecies speak of them all. 
we, if we do not rightly divide the word of God, as Paul's expression is, we will face confusion and uncertainty. If, on the other hand, we correctly envision our proper role and know what we should what should be done today, we shall then be able to use our time, talents, and means to the best advantage in building up the kingdom of God and preparing the people for the second coming of the Son of Man. The three phases of this great Latter-day work are as follows. Phase 1. From the first vision, the setting up of the kingdom on April 6, 1830, and the coming of Moses on April 3, 1836, to the secure establishment of the church in the United States and Canada, a period of about 125 years. Phase 2. From the creation of the Stakes of Zion in overseas areas, beginning in the 1950s, to the second coming of the Son of Man, a period of unknown duration. Phase 3. From our Lord's second coming until the kingdom is perfected, and the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, and from then until the end of the millennium, a period of 1,000 years. We live in the age of restoration. Peter calls it the times of restitution, meaning the period of time in the earth's history when that which once was shall be restored in all its original glory and perfection. He says the things to be re restored include all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. And there are few things which of which Israel's prophets have spoken with more fervor and zeal than the latter-day gathering of the house of Jacob, and the part that favored that favored people will play in the building of Zion again on earth. End quote. The 133rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants suggests that the land will be restored to the way it was before it was divided, that the ocean will no longer separate the continents. So perhaps that is how the ten lost tribes will return to their exile from their exile. Other scriptures suggest that a highway will be brought up out of the sea to lead them home to Israel. The, the gathering of Israel and the building of New Jerusalem are extremely important to Latter-day Saints. In July 2014, President Russell M. Nelson explained why. Quote, why is this promise of gathering so crucial? Because a gathering of Israel is necessary to prepare the world for the second coming. And the Book of Mormon is God's instrument needed to accomplish both of these divine objectives. End quote. President Nelson continues concerning Zion and the gathering of Israel. Quote, Zion exists wherever righteous saints gather. Publications, communications, and congregations give nearly all church members access to the doctrine, keys, ordinances, and blessings of the gospel, regardless of location. As a convenience to saints across the globe, 143 temples are available, and more are coming. Saints in every land have equal claim upon the blessings of the Lord. Spiritual security will always depend on how we live, not where we live. The gathering of Israel is not an ultimate end point. It is but the beginning. The end to which we endure includes the endowment and sealing ordinances of the temple. It includes our entrance into a covenant relationship with God, either by lineage or adoption, and then dwelling with him and our families forever. That is God's glory, eternal life for his children. End quote. President Nelson's wife, Wendy, shared her story in the June, June 20, 2018 Worldwide Devotional for Youth which demonstrates how the twelve tribes, particularly the Lost Ten, are still found around the world. Before I relate the story, I want to point my listeners back to the interview I did with my grandfather in bonus episode 2, George Richens, Patriarch, Sealer, and Grandpa. 
In that interview, my grandfather explains how patriarchal blessings tell one of how he or she fits into the twelve tribes, whether by adoption or by blood. Patriarchal blessings, available to all worthy and ready members of the church, declare to which tribe you belong. Sister Wendy W. Nelson said, quote, We often talk about living in the latter days. We are, after all, latter-day saints. But perhaps these days are more latter than we have ever imagined. This truth became a reality for me because of what I experienced during one 24-hour period of time that commenced on June 15, 2013. My husband and I were in Moscow, Russia, with nearly 100 of our sisters. I love our Russian sisters. They are spectacular. When I stepped to the pulpit to speak, I found myself saying something I never anticipated. I said to the women, I'd like to get to know you by lineage. Please stand as the tribe of Israel that represents the lineage declared in your patriarchal blessing is spoken. Benjamin, a couple women stood. Dan, a couple more. Reuben, a few more stood. Naphtali, more stood. As the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were announced from Asher to Zebulon, and as the women stood, we were all amazed with what we were witnessing, feeling, and learning. How many of the twelve tribes of Israel do you think were represented in that small gathering of fewer than 100 women on that Saturday in Moscow? Eleven. Eleven of the twelve tribes of Israel were represented in that one room. The only tribe missing was that of Levi. I was astonished. It was a spiritually moving moment for me. Immediately after those meetings, my husband and I went directly to Yerevan, Armenia. The first people we met as soon as we got off the plane were the mission president and his wife. Somehow she heard about the experience in Moscow, and with great delight she said, I've got Levi. Just imagine our thrill when my husband and I met their missionaries the next day, including an elder from the tribe of Levi, who just happened to be from Gilbert, Arizona. Now, I was, when I was a little girl attending primary in Raymond, Alberta, Canada, I learned that in the last days, before the second coming of the Savior, the twelve tribes of Israel would be gathered. That truth was thrilling to me, and at the time, quite overwhelming to wrap my mind around. So imagine what it was like for me to be with members of all twelve tribes of Israel within one 24-hour period of time. I have since learned that I probably should not have asked those sisters to identify themselves by lineage, because patriarchal blessings are sacred and the lineage declared in them is personal. Yet I am so grateful for the privilege I had of seeing the fruits of the gathering of Israel firsthand. The impact of that experience has never diminished in my heart or mind." End quote. President Russell M. Nelson, in that same 2018 Worldwide Devotional, spoke with the role of the Latter-day Saints, particularly the youth, in the gathering of Israel. Quote, when we speak of the gathering, we are simply saying that this fundamental truth, every one of our Heavenly Father's children, on both sides of the veil, deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. They decide for themselves if they want to know more. Those whose lineage is from Various tribes of Israel are those whose hearts are most likely to be turned to the Lord. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Those who are of the house of Israel will most easily recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and will desire to be gathered into his fold. They will want to become members of his church, make covenants with him and Heavenly Father, and receive their essential ordinances. I testify that the gathering of Israel is now and it is real. In the year I was born, the total membership of the church was less than 600,000 people, with no members in South America. Today there are more than 16 million members worldwide, with nearly 3 million members in South America. 
My dear extraordinary youth, you were sent to earth at this precise time, the most crucial time in the history of the world, to help gather Israel. Nothing is more, nothing happening on this earth right now that is more important than that. There is nothing of greater consequence, absolutely nothing. This gathering should mean everything to you. This is the mission for which you were sent to earth. End quote. To finish off this episode, and I know there are a lot of long quotes, I want to express my hope that my listeners can understand how important gathering of Israel is to Latter-day Saints. That is why young men and young women put their homes, careers, and education on hold for two years or 18 months to serve missions. It has been the quest of the church from the very beginning to unite the world under the reign of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. Mormons believe that this can only be accomplished by gathering Israel. So, my friends who are not, non, who are not Mormons... Be kind to missionaries and go forward with a better understanding of why Mormons spread the gospel. They do it because they take, because they take, they care, and because they seek to bring glory and exaltation to all. This has been a very long bonus episode of the Mormon History Podcast. Thanks for listening.